Good morning. You can hear me well. Um, I am so um, struck this morning that even though we don't really have in any way a famous church and you, you don't have a famous preacher speaking this morning and we certainly don't have a famous social media account, but we are living for and loving and following a famous rescuer, a famous Jesus, a globally renowned Jesus. And that's why it's um, so much fun to talk and walk through this series where we're looking at how, how in fact, Jesus became famous. By the way, you're among church, a church family that believes that Jesus is not a fictitious or a fictitious storybook character in ancient uh, religious books. You're among a church who believes that Jesus is a historical figure who literally lived and um, literally died and literally raised from the dead, and that those implications of that are life-changing. Pastor Yon called it heart-transforming. It changes everything about our life. And so, um, we believe that our church exists to help make Jesus famous. He has made His own name famous. The Holy Spirit has the eternal role of making His name famous, but He invites us to help make Him famous. So, we're talking about life-changing encounters with Jesus today, and we are talking about that in part because of something that is said to Jesus here in the Gospel of John. You can't become famous, Jesus, if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. So, we're going to look today at a passage of Scripture in the Gospel of John as, as to where Jesus shows what wonderful things He can do, but He does so reluctantly. And um, when you get to see Jesus and savor Jesus, and you get to enjoy and delight in and enjoy Jesus because of who He is and what He's done, these wonderful things, um, your life changes. And so we want to look at how did Jesus become famous and how did He show Himself to the world? Where did it start? And it started with some encounters that he had with individual people. And in this series, we're talking about five of them, God willing. Last week, we talked about his encounter with the skeptic. Today, we'll talk about his conversation that he has at a wedding banquet where he's speaking to his mother. And we'll look at how he emerges. His fame starts to emerge right through this conversation that he has with his mother. And to set the stage, really, for how we're going to understand what happens here in this wedding banquet when he's talking to his mother, um, we have to understand what this story is about. And this story, this situation that we discover Jesus in, is actually a situation uh, that at its foundation is for the purpose of revealing his glory. Um, So that's the backdrop here at this wedding party to help us understand what happened. So, this miraculous sign at Cana, this is the Gospel of John chapter 2. In Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed His glory. Um, Help me out here. Um, Which time was this the time that Jesus revealed His glory? First time. Good. Two people got an A. The rest of you, D. Now we're showing off. Now we're showing off, aren't we? Aren't we? 
So the first time Jesus reveals his glory. So you understand where we are in the story here? We're in John chapter 2. It's early in the Gospels. Jesus' life and ministry has been really at, uh, um, in place here for um, really just a short time. But now there is something that's emerging. And for the first time here and in Cana, Jesus reveals his glory and his disciples believed in him. So now they're starting to see this Jesus is legit. He said these things, we've been following him, we've been kind of watching closely, but now he chooses to do this miraculous sign, and it's the first of his signs through which he reveals his true identity, which is that he is God himself, fully God, fully man. And it helps us think about how things can be put right in the world, and then it'll help us notice and pay attention to how he made everything right. How did he do it? What particular way did Jesus make everything right? And it actually happens through something that I want to label or categorize a wedding party disaster. How many of you have ever planned a wedding or been very close to helping to plan a wedding? Raise your hand if you would. Raise the other hand if there were some jitters and nerves and anxiety over how it was going to go, right? Um, Some of us were even glad it was over when it was finally over, right? There's a lot of jitters that go in. When I'm helping, um, when I'm involved in a wedding ceremony, sometimes I try to just soothe the bride and groom. Um, I don't have to do much soothing of the groom. He oftentimes is just a passive observant. You know what I mean? He's just kind of doing what everybody tells him. Not always, but sometimes. And then, but to soothe the bride, to help her just take in the moment. Don't miss what's happening for fear that something isn't going to go right. Well, in this particular wedding, it isn't only true that something doesn't go right, something goes disastrous, disastrously wrong. There is a social catastrophe. Um, the magnitude of which I don't even know necessarily how to compare culturally based on what we experience. Well, first you have to keep in mind that Jewish weddings back then were way, way, way bigger than the couple. They were way bigger than just the individual people who were getting married. In fact, they were way longer than a ceremony and a reception. They oftentimes lasted up to a week, the celebration. Not only did they last a week... um, the purpose of the marriage was very different than what we believe the purpose of marriage is. The purpose of the marriage in the culture and community back then was something called the commonwealth. And how does that word work? It was the marriage was about the commonwealth of the village. In other words, um, a wedding party was a public celebration of a flourishing couple who has a flourishing family who are joining themselves together in an expression of wealth, and they're including the entire community as they express an expanding community and also greater security economically, militarily. But the wedding party here, this wedding party, crashes to the ground. And with that backdrop, you might be able to figure out why. Here's how it goes. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus, and his disciples. Now, just, just for a quick little pause, there's a wedding in a village for the commonwealth of everybody, right? This is a very public celebration, and a celebrity is there. And the celebrity brought along his disciples. So... 
Can you sense a little bit the pressure that's mounting here? Everybody is assessing what's happening. So, um, so this party, by the way, because of this and other reasons, this party has to come off smoothly. This wedding has to come off smoothly. The wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother told him they have no more wine. Jesus' mother tells Jesus, who's a guest, right? He is not in charge of the wedding. He is not um, responsible for whether or not there are enough plates, cups, and wine at the party. So Jesus, especially, he's not the banquet master. He's not in charge of making sure that the, the celebration continues without a hitch. And um, th- Jesus is told here by his mother that we've got a problem. And the problem, the number one problem that's happening here is there's no more wine. Now, do you remember the commonwealth, commonwealth culture I just referred to? So the fact that there's no more wine means that we have a bigger problem than people don't have anything to drink. What it means is that here, publicly, especially in a shame and honor culture, this couple and their family is facing a supreme public embarrassment. I mean, can you picture, maybe it's one way to picture it in our culture is you're at a wedding reception and a few tables have gone up to the buffet and you're waiting there thinking such beautifully selfless thoughts like, why didn't they call my table before that table? We sat down long before they sat down. What a ripoff this is. Who's organizing this? Why is this working out this way? And then imagine when the person comes up to your table to call you up to the buffet, they say, I have some really bad news. That last buffet run, that's the end. You're already moaning and groaning, and this is just a fictitious story. This hasn't even happened, probably ever. This is, this is far worse than that. Because of the Commonwealth celebration, this is far worse. This is not only public embarrassment, but this is fa- potential, potentially family shame. As the entire village starts to wonder, are these people incompetent? They didn't know how to accommodate all of these guests and how much to order? Do they not have a Costco (laughs) down the street? Or they start thinking about them things like, are these people just inconsiderate? Are they stingy? This is a terrible oversight. It's one thing to serve the best wine at the beginning and while everybody gets all tipsy and a little bit drunk, then bring out the junky wine, but they don't even have the junky wine. They've run out. Maybe the worst case scenario is the whole village starts to think or perhaps even discover that this is a poor family in the lower class than we anticipated. There was a lot at stake here. Terrible, terrible um, embarrassment and shame. But look how Jesus says something. And actually, he says something uncharacteristically harsh to his mother. So um, here's where we're at. Jesus' mother comes to him and says, get this, no more wine. There's a problem. And here's Jesus' response. Dear woman, by the way, we don't have a phrase that helps communicate how, I don't know about harsh. Harsh would be maybe too harsh of a word to use. Um, Irritated. This phrase is. In fact, when Jesus was being tortured, he didn't say anything this representing this kind of irritation. 
This is, he's agitated by this question, and he, and he expresses it by saying, dear woman, and this is not wrong, right? Not our problem. So guess what? I feel bad for them, but that is their problem. We're guests. This is not our problem. So um, this is Jesus not just in a bad mood. Something's weighing heavenly on him. He's not disturbed that his mother would dare to ask him a question. There's something more happening here, and it's significant, and it's important for us to look and see why in the world would he do that? Why would his, by the way, why would his first miracle, a signifying miracle according to John, why would he use his supernatural divine power to spring his identity on everybody at the village over a a little social dilemma. Why would he do that? By the way, he already knows nobody's dying here. Nobody's demon-possessed here. Nobody is starving to death here. We have ourselves um, no drink for all these drunk people to keep drinking the rest of the week. So... um, It's not really my problem. And then he lets us know what's so irritating. Curious as to what's so irritating to Jesus? Check this out. He says, my time has not yet come. And this is important. If you're a note taker, you do a little studying, or you like to dig under the surface, I want want to point out this phrase, my time. Some versions say, my hour has not come. That's such a great phrase, isn't it? By the way, if you hear me using that in the future, it's because I want to be more like Jesus. I'm going to start saying things like, my hour has not come. You, make, you schedule some coffee, and you're like, hey, I'm hoping to do, what do you think about 2 o'clock? I might drop this on you. 2 o'clock is okay, but my, my hour has not come. Has not yet come. Doesn't that sound pretty cool? I like it, even if you don't. Or, my time has not yet come. So this is important. And um, how do you think his mother responds? I want to point out that I'm pretty sure, I mean, I hope you can picture this. Jesus says, dear woman, don't bother me with this. This is not a real problem. And she's like, well, but there's no more wine. And then he says, but listen, it's not our problem. My time has not yet come. And you can just picture this. I picture this like most mothers. Anyway, his mother told his servants, do whatever he tells you, okay? In other words, he's going to do this, right? Isn't that funny? They skip over any other interaction in between this other than Jesus saying, I'm not going to do it. And she's like, okay, do whatever he says. <laughs> Just listen to his instructions. And she leaves. Mom crushes it, as always. So that's the instructions he gets um, from his mother. And, and, and I want to I wanna look at this phrase. Because this is a problem. And this is a problem that here Jesus is identifying, and he says, my time has not yet come. And what he means here is, I cannot publicly reveal my divine identity right now. Because when, when I reveal my divine identity, it begins a ticking talk, a ticking talk. I hate TikTok more than ever right now. <laughs> more than ever. A, t- a ticking clock. He reveals this moment would, would begin 
a ticking clock counting down towards his time, his hour. Some of you know this means his hour of suffering, his supreme, crucified, public death, execution on the cross. And this revelation of who he is would begin that timeline. And so that's why Jesus says, it is not my time. Now, why would he be, why would Jesus have to, uh, why is there, here's a better question, why is there something that Jesus calls my time? Why is there a cross? Why is there a crucifixion? Why is there a painful blood sacrifice of an innocent, um, in the New Testament, lamb? Jesus is called the lamb. Why is that? And the answer is this time has to come in order to forgive sin. This time has to come in order to forgive sin. What does sin mean? It means falling short of God's glorious holy standard. So for people who say, and this is certainly common in our culture, um, I don't know about the whole sin thing. I haven't what? I haven't killed anybody. I haven't committed a violent crime. I haven't done bad things to innocent people. This simply means sin. In God's mind, in God's eyes, sin sin simply means falling short of His standard. He has a holy, perfect standard, and to fall short of that, to miss the mark. And that would mean human sin, our sin, my sin, your sin. That's why Jesus has something called my time. For all have sinned. And what? Fallen short of the glorious, perfect, holy standard of God. And so that's why my time has to happen. And that's why Jesus refers to something called my time. And if you live long enough, and if you're honest with, your not, uh, honest with yourself just enough, you will learn beyond any doubt that there are things in your heart that will eventually bite you. There are things in your heart that will eventually shock you. There are things in your heart that will eventually hurt the people that you love. And sometimes, if you're honest with yourself, you might even think or say, I'm not even, I didn't even know I was capable of that. What is that? That's the ugliness of sin represented in our own hearts. So, the question isn't, have I made a mistake? The question is, have I fallen short of God's glorious, perfect standard? And the Scripture teaches us that God wants us to know that everybody has. Everybody, um, in fact, has done or thought or wished something to occur that they were surprised they were capable of thinking, wishing, or doing. So, um, this is an important problem that we're facing here. And most of us, the self-centeredness and the sinfulness of our hearts has not led to any overtly criminal violence or cruelty, but it has still potentially caused misery for people around us. And it has definitely caused us from serving the God who created us wholeheartedly, right? Sometimes even living on our own for our own glory like Adam and Eve. That's what our sinful heart has done, kept us from serving the God who has created us and the God to whom we owe everything to. And Jesus came to cleanse us of this sin. My time is a time in which Jesus, by his self-sacrifice, purifies us from what is spiritually wrong with us. So, um, in this wedding disaster, Jesus brings that healing He brings that cleansing, and He brings that forgiveness by His own self-sacrificing death 
on a cross. If you're a Christian, you're following Jesus, you've heard that phrase, used that phrase infinite number of times. But does our sin really require a gory death on the cross? Does it really require that? Is, um, is this really necessary? Is the, is the glorious moment of Jesus' death on that cross absorbing all of God's wrath against sin, is that, is that really necessary? Maybe it's helpful to picture that or to illustrate that. And the reason the answer is yes is because of this. Forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is costly. To forgive someone is to spend. It is costly, right? And forgiveness might be free for you, but somebody paid for it. Does that make sense? So this, I remember this happening to me. This is my favorite coffee mug in my, for whatever reason, in my favorite color. Uh, bought that coffee mug, um, I think it was right around 2007 from Starbucks. It's the... Um, I paid $8-ish for it, $7.95 or so. Now, what would that mug cost now? Does anybody want to take a guess? You're right, a lot more. That's the answer. So about 10 years ago, someone broke that mug, my favorite mug. It's a dual, double wall, so it's very fragile, hollow in between uh, the double wall. But it, uh, someone was washing it, boom, hit the sink, broke into pieces, and you know what they said, right? They said, oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy a new one. I feel terrible. I'm going to replace it. And, of course, you don't want anybody to do that, right? So I said what all of you would say, which is, uh, could you have me uh, this mug back by Wednesday? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I didn't say that. I said Tuesday. So um, I said what everybody says. I said, there's, there's no way you're going to replace this mug. I'm going to go get another mug just like it. Uh, it'll be so easy to replace. I even considered, do I even really need a special mug? Do I really need one that's insulated like this and that helps me taste all the tastes that my coffee brings me every morning? But I would not let them. I said, I'm not going to let you pay for this. So later on, I went shopping to replace the mug. And the mug hadn't been out for a while. And, and what I discovered that was online, I discovered that this is actually, uh, I only found one mug online, and it was on eBay, and look how much it was, $39. Because I didn't know that this mug had become a part of a collector's item from Starbucks mugs. So, to forgive my friend, who I wouldn't let repay. Either I pay the price, the extra price. I mean, how many of you would, wait, would pay $39 for a little ceramic mug? Raise my hand. Exactly. Nobody in their right mind would pay that much. Now, if you opened your cabinet and looked at all the mugs that you've purchased that you don't use, you've paid this times, what, 100 Probably. So either I pay the price on eBay to buy the mug, or I go without one but I'm the one who's going to pay the full price in order to forgive the person who broke the mug. Of course, I, don't, I didn't need to forgive them. I'm just illustrating that. I mean, I should have forgiven them. I, I intended to forgive them. So here's what I mean. The cost of forgiveness, the cost of forgiveness, this is what I hope you catch. The cost of forgiveness is mine. 
Does that make sense? Now, this also happens even more so with our own reputation. If somebody damages your reputation, you can say about your reputation, you can say, um, look, uh, I'm going to forgive you for damaging. You might even say this in your own heart. I'm going to forgive you for damaging my reputation, for what this is costing me with my credibility and trust with other people. Or you could retaliate an eye for an eye, and you could say, you know what? I'm not forgiving them. I'm going to let everybody know that they're the ones who are wrong. They're the ones who are not credible. These are the people. This is the person that you shouldn't trust. I'm going to get back on the slander train and make sure you get a little taste of your own medicine. But if you decide that you're going to forgive somebody for uh, damaging your reputation, you have to accept the cost of your wounded and bruised credibility. You have to accept the cost that your reputation has been damaged. You cannot truly forgive this debt without taking it upon yourself. So the cross, as much, as, much as, as it costs God to forgive us, is only free for us. God Himself takes the debt upon Himself to pay for forgiveness so that we don't have to. And that's what the cross is. The cross is God saying, you did the damage, you broke the, uh, um, your own life, you broke the world, humans, you are the one that actually damaged everything that I have created perfectly, but the cross means that I'm going to absorb the cost of that. I'm going to pay what it costs. And it's a supreme cost for him, free for us. Right, But here's my point. Somebody, when there's forgiveness, somebody has to pay for that forgiveness. It's not free. Somebody absorbs it. So let's finish this encounter with Jesus. Um, we see here that at this wedding party, Jesus shows himself a master. He actually becomes, in some ways, the master of the banquet. Check this out. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. And each could hold 20 to 30 gallons Standing, Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. You remember why he's doing this? Because his mother told him to. You remember this? This is where we're at in the story. Fill the jars with water. And when the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out, take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. So there's a master of ceremonies who is in charge of making sure that all of the fun and joy continues on through the week. The master of ceremonies, the master of the banquet is responsible for keeping the joy going. The joy of the newlyweds, the joy of the wedding party, and the joy, especially the joy of the guests. So when the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. And he says... And this is captured in the series, The Chosen, remarkably well. A host, this is the master of the ceremonies, says to the host of the party, a host always serves the best wine first. He said, then, when everyone has had a lot to drink, right, their taste buds are all blurry-eyed and they don't necessarily care what they're drinking as long as they are drinking, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you, this family, this couple, they brought out the best wine for last. They are still serving the best joy at the end. Not only does Jesus rescue them 
This is amazing. Not only does Jesus rescue them from their shame, he lifts them from being at the bottom in their town and in their village. And he doesn't just kind of give them a boost. He doesn't just say, look, we're going to give you a hand a little bit and make sure this thing, we pull this thing. He lifts them all the way up to a place of honor where the master of ceremony steps back and announces to the village, these people have done something no other host has ever done. They served us wine that we liked at the beginning, but now they're serving us the best wine that we love all the way to the end. And they announced to the entire village, these people are special. And instead of shame and embarrassment and guilt and a life-altering distance living underneath the rest of the village, Jesus says, you're coming up to the top. I'm going to give you honor that you don't deserve. And you're going, to give, you're going to get honor that I provide for you. And this is a picture. This is a picture of how stunning it is what Jesus does to go on to take your shame and your guilt when he's experiencing his hour, his time on that cross. He just doesn't take your guilt and shame and say, okay, now we've got an even Stephen. Now you can go out there and live like normal folks. Uh Uh-uh. He says, now you are purified and cleansed and I'm going to adopt you as my own child. You're going to have all my inheritance and I'm going to share my eternal glory with you. From the bottom all the way to the top. And this is the joy we sing of on Sundays. This is the joy that helps us look at hardship and say this is hard now, but there is a joy coming that has been paid for ultimately by the one who has paid the supreme price. And for that forgiveness, I've paid nothing. For that rescue from my guilt and shame, I haven't paid anything. This represents something incredibly special. When Jesus rescues you, he just doesn't erase your mistakes. He spares you from death and sin and shame and guilt and honors you with adoption and an inheritance and sharing his glory. That's pretty cool. That's life-changing. That is the game-changer in the Christian faith that no other religious leader does. I want to point out a glorious bit of symbolism here real quick. The symbolism that we see in this, there's a lot, but two in particular I want to point out, and that's ceremonial water jars and also a wedding feast. A glorious symbol, ceremonial jars and a wedding feast that show up in this story. And if you don't know what you're looking for, guess what? You don't see it. So um, let me give you a picture here of what these water jars would look like. These are the ceremonial water jars. These are the jars that Jesus um, used, fill them with water, change it to wine. Um, It's important to know what these jars mean because in the Old Testament Judaism, um, there was a routine that God designed and demanded called ceremonial washing. And the ceremonial washing was routine 
it was a regulation and it was, it, it was something that was required as a symbol for the cleansing and the purification of their sin, along with um, a reminder. It's a physical cleansing and a physical purification. All of that was a symbol to point to our spiritual need. The human beings had to um, ceremonial, ceremonially wash themselves in order to represent that they have, they've been stained and that they um, have a spiritual need. So these jars vividly got across the idea that God is holy, God is perfect, God is flawless, and that we are flawed, and to connect with Him at all, there needs to be some kind of atonement. There needs to be some kind of cleansing or a pardon that we cannot just walk right into His presence because He is perfectly and supremely holy and glorious. So the Jews had a lot of purification um, laws and routines that would lead up to eventually blood sacrifices for their sin, and that's what the jars were normally used for. By using these jars on a regular basis... Someone would um, come into a world and um, accomplish in reality. This is what Jesus was doing. Jesus was coming into their world and accomplishing in reality what they were doing in symbolism. In other words, they were using the ceremonial water jars to bring a cleansing into their lives so that they could be in God's presence. But Jesus comes into the world to accomplish something in reality, what was being symbolized by these water jars. Jesus miraculously replaces the water in these jars that's used for cleansing, and He replaces it with a whole new wine. As a result of Jesus' miraculous intervention, His wine or His blood cleanses and saves the family from their embarrassment. Cleanses and um, saves the family from their guilt and shame. So this joy replaces their life-altering disaster. Uh, a ceremony that used to be their work and their effort to make sure that they were clean and cleansed, now being done by Jesus, illustrated right in those that required so much work and so much routine and so much regulation. And Jesus is here to say, now I'm replacing that with what? With my new wine. What does wine represent in the, in the, in the communion memory, uh, memorial service? When we're remembering, what's the wine represent? The blood. I'm going to fill those jars with my blood, and I'm going to accomplish for you the cleansing once and for all and for all eternity. That's the symbol. I hope it lands with you. So, Jesus brings festival joy to the world and cleanses humankind from their guilt and their shame. And we can't really understand joy in Jesus until we really understand sin. And we have to understand that we are stained, we need to be purified, and that we have guilt and we have shame. And we need to be rescued from it. Not just excused for our mistakes, but rescued from our deep sin. And uh, I, I love how Tim Keller puts this. Uh, Timothy Keller is describing this, and he's actually, he, he says, you actually do know how deep the sin is, but you're not really aware of it quite often. He says, most of us very much 
recognize that something's wrong with us. And he, and he asks these questions. He says, if, if this is true, because why are you working so hard? This is true because why do you need to be right all the time? This is true because why do you worry so much about how you look and how people perceive you? Unless somehow deep down in our bones we know something's off. We're not, we're not exactly the way that we ought to be. We're certainly not the way that we want to be. It's because, Tim Keller says, you know there is something wrong and you're trying to purify yourself, you're trying to prove yourself, and you're trying to cover it up, a.k.a. Adam and Eve. So, by choosing these ceremonial jars, Jesus himself was signaling something that the book of Hebrews tells us, that Jesus replaces. He fulfills the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. Because I'm a sinner, sin needs to be punished, and um, instead, someone atones for me. So there's another symbol, real quick, it's the wedding feast. This is also a symbol. For those who belong to Jesus, did you know this? Those who belong to Jesus, there's a wedding feast coming, like a really, really big one, like a super long one, like a blow-your-mind wedding feast that's coming. Did you know this? In the Christian faith, it's described in detail that at the end, the groom and the bride are reunited, and there's a celebration and a feast to follow. God relates to us. This helps us see. This, this symbol helps us see how God relates to us. He relates to us with profound love as a groom relates to his bride. And God wants to show us that he doesn't only relate to us as he's your king and you're his submitted subject, but also he's sending a clear, vivid picture here that he sees you as a bride and he sees himself as the groom who belongs to the bride and the bride who belongs to the groom. And he wants a love relationship with us, not just a subservient king and subject relationship with us. And as profound as a marriage relationship would be, a relationship that's as intimate as a marriage relationship would be, a lifelong marriage. And God demonstrates this supreme love. How does he demonstrate his supreme love like a groom demonstrates to his bride? self substitution. And what we really have on the cross here is supreme love. What we have on the cross here is God himself coming to earth, paying the ultimate price with his own life. He doesn't make us pay. Instead, he pays our debt to God for our own sin. Some have called this the self-substitution of God, substitutionary atonement if you're a note-taker. So, the wedding feast. Here's what we learn. Jesus, this is, this is pretty good, I think. Jesus is the true and better master of the banquet. Why? Because he brings out the best joy at the end. The joy of living with Jesus now, good. Some would say great. But this is nothing like the joy that's going to be brought out at the end by the true and better master of ceremonies who's going to bring out at the end, um, the most eternal joy. Of course, Jesus says, I'm going to suffer. Yes, there's going to be self-denial. Yes, there's going to be sacrifice that you're going to make, first for me, then for all my followers. But this is meant to end. This will eventually end. And I, as the master of ceremonies, am going to keep the joy going. It's all in order to bring about 
the joy of the resurrection, the new earth, and the new heavens, and eventually the end of evil and death and tears. Now, this is really quick. I hope you have the bandwidth for this. I want to show you two things. The the prophet Isaiah says this feast is coming, and then John the Revelator, who is the Apostle John, writes in the book of Revelation, he says, I saw this I saw this feast. So I want you to get this. Centuries before, the prophet Isaiah says, there's an incredible finale coming. The eternal joy is on its way, including a feast for those who belong to Jesus, the bride and the groom. And then John the Revelator says, do you want to know what it looks like? God gave me a vision of it, and I wrote it down. And then for those of us who think, well, that was a really, really good um, mythical Story. he finishes his description by saying, all this is true and it's going to happen. Just in case you were thinking, well, that was cute. I'm going to tell my kids this story and hope they can imagine it. Uh-uh. This is, gonna, this is true and it's going to happen. So um, really quick, check this out. In Jerusalem, this is the prophet Isaiah. Centuries before any of this Jesus at the wedding banquet is the master of ceremonies, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet. I'm just, I'm pretty amped up that in the Bible the word delicious is in there. Isn't that encouraging to you? It's God's word. And it's going to be a banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There is where he will remove. And this is, this is I, I am positive that this is for somebody whose heart is bruised. And who's asking the question, is, it, is this ever going to end? I just go from one calamity to another, one distress and hardship to another. And, 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 and really, is, is this all there is? Isaiah prophesies the words of God. That's not how it ends. Don't despair. There is where he will remove the cloud of gloom and the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. Some of you know all too well how low those clouds are hanging because they're resting in your life with grief and suffering and loss and hardship and despair and uncertainty. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe, every, wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against His land and people. The Lord has spoken. So some of us are... Um, fully engaged politically. I know that for those of you who are fully engaged politically, you can get pretty amped up thinking somebody has to set this right. Somebody has to tell the truth and do what's right and make this right again. And what we see here is that you don't have to throw away all of your inner peace to see this happen because eventually one day it'll all be made right. One day, eventually, you will realize, I didn't have to lose my mind back then. I didn't have to give up my joy back then. I didn't have to sacrifice my inner peace back then. Because why? Because He will remove forever all the insults and mockery against His own name. What a relief. What a relief. So, at the end of time, there's going to be a feast of all feasts. Not simply a generic wedding, but a wedding feast. And it celebrates the long last, the intimate and the permanent 
union of people who love each other and belong to God. This is what Jesus came to accomplish. We, the bride, the people of Jesus, who Jesus has loved, finally will be united with him who is our groom. So, now I mentioned the Apostle John. Look how he describes it. What does this look like? He actually describes it here in the book of Revelation. And the angel said to me, write this. Who said that to John, by the way? Help me out. The angel. The angel telling John what to envision. Write this. Blessed are those who are invited where? To the wedding feast of the Lamb. Now, if you're new to the Christian faith, I am prayerful, honestly, I'm prayerful that this will be kind of fall into place and you'll get a clear understanding. In other words, I hope that by God's Spirit, He helps you understand what's being presented here rather than my words. I feel like, Dan, you, uh, you don't have the words. You don't have the teaching ability to help this fall into place right in someone's heart. So I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit helps you see what's happening, that there is a wedding feast of the Lamb that's on its way in the end. Then, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heavens like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. It's a wedding banquet. It's a festival of joy between God and his church, who is his bride. Who is his church? Anyone who belongs to Jesus by faith. I mean, our future... You may be like, you know what? I don't know what America's future is going to look like. But if you belong to Jesus, you know what your future looks like. If you belong to his church, you know what your future looks like. And I got to be honest, even though these are clear and and very, very specific words, it's pretty mind-boggling, right, what it's going to look like. I heard a loud voice shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things, where are all these things? What does it say? Gone forever. For a little while, a few days, a couple of weeks, century, forever they go away. We have so much to be grateful for, church family. We have so much joy that despite and beyond what you're facing, and in fact, you might be facing a situation where you feel like indeed you did run out of wine at your own wedding banquet. And you're carrying the weight of that. And what I'm hoping is that somehow through God's Holy Spirit, you're able to see the wedding banquet that's coming that will be the greatest joy, the infinite and supremely loving bridegroom there, finally reunited. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down. I love this. Write down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. Um, church family, this is true. This is true. If you belong to Jesus and the Holy Spirit is indwelling in you, your heart identifies with that, right? It's like, oh, that, that, that's true. And if you don't, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, 
Sounds like another religion to me. Sounds like fantasy to me. Hard for me to picture. Some of you have heard of the um, author Dostoevsky, have you? I hope. An amazing quote from Dostoevsky. He says that he believes that at the end, the reality will be so astonishing. This joy will be so incredible. The fulfillment of this will be so amazing. Most miserable life will feel like one bad night in a crummy hotel. And then it's over. Smart guy said that. One night in a bad hotel, there's no more heart-melting joy than to know this, what someone has sacrificed for you. How could you be transformed if you knew that this love of Jesus, this self-sacrificing love, was for you personally? Not just for the world, but for you personally. The forgiveness that you need from a creator is something that he has paid for and offers to you, and you receive it with joy, by faith. Well, Pastor, do I have to sign up for church? No, nope. you become a part of the church. Do I have to give and do and go and change my lifestyle, whatever? No, no. You have to say, I no longer trust myself to earn God's favor. I no longer trust myself to do all the ceremonies and the routines and the regulations to save myself and rescue myself. I now transfer my trust and I rest it in the work of Jesus. No more ceremonial water jars. Now it's the new wine of Jesus' blood. So much rich symbolism. Through substitutionary sacrifice, not just to free you from guilt, but eventually this has all been done, not just to free you from guilt and shame, but so that you fall into the loving arms of the groom. A new relationship of love and joy so that he could love you and perfect you. Would you pray, pray with me? Father, we pray that you'd help these things come alive in the hearts of our people. We pray that you would um, help these symbols become real, not just literature and symbolism. I pray that you'd help um, Jesus become more and more beautiful to our hearts together. God, I thank you for the depth and the richness of the Gospels. And in this encounter with Jesus and his mother, we pray that you would use it to save and rescue souls who are listening now, who are in this room in person and who are tuned in through the live stream. We pray that you would miraculously, by your divine power, reveal yourself and that there would be so many hearts repentant, turning from trusting their own work and effort and routines and ceremonies and religion, and that they would instead renounce that and pick up the work of Jesus, the person, the beautiful work of Jesus, and rest in that. We thank you, God, for saving us. Thank you for the work that you did at that wedding to show us how it's going to end, how you're going to keep the joy going forever. We trust you and treasure you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Church family, would you stand and sing some of this joy? Let some of this joy out, would you? And um, if you aren't a great singer, I give you a 30 seconds to turn to the person next to you and say, I'm sorry for what you're about to hear. I apologize. You're going to hear some things that maybe no one's ever heard. But 
here's what you're doing. You're saying, I'm letting my heart sing of this joy. And I don't really care how my joy is heard by someone else. Sound good? Sound good? Let's sing together.